listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific Ngo Okoroi Hawkins. Coming up... This situation is different because not only did the government respond by seeking the dissolution of Parliament, but the President has acceded to that request. Vanuatu is preparing for a snap election unless a court challenge is made against the President's decision to dissolve Parliament. Also... Uh, we're one step closer, one death closer to a very grim milestone. The CNMI is struggling with a COVID-19 outbreak that started after it reopened its borders in June and... You guys must work out what your dream is. And it doesn't matter what you do. Just do something. We tell to a South Auckland business leader who's just been inducted into the New Zealand Business Hall of Fame. The ball is in the Vanuatu opposition's court after yesterday's dissolution of parliament by the president. Caretaker Prime Minister Bob Lofman is already in election preparation mode, but the now former opposition leader, Ralph Reganbanu, had indicated he would challenge the dissolution in court. The political instability in Vanuatu began last week after 17 government MPs crossed the floor to support a motion of no confidence in Mr Lofman's leadership, but who now find themselves out of a job and heading back to the polls. RNZ Pacific Regional Correspondent Kelvin Anthony spoke with the project lead of the Pacific Hub at the Griffith Asia Institute, Tess Newton-Kane, about the political situation in Vanuatu and began by asking her if the country could be headed towards a constitutional crisis. I think it's too early to say. Um, in some situations, I mean, on the one hand, this issue of using motions of no confidence to affect a change of leadership is something that's relatively common in Vanuatu politics. This situation is different because not only did the government respond by seeking a dissolution of parliament, but the president has acceded to that request. Now, as we heard late yesterday, the leader of the opposition has said that this this decision by the president will be challenged in court. So I think we really need to see what happens. Does the court accept that application? And when, if and when, assuming it does, what decision comes down. Obviously, it does. As if, if the decision were to go in favour of the opposition, um, I think that would leave the president um, open to some criticism. But I don't know that it's necessarily something that would broker or, you know, take us to the brink of a constitutional crisis. Uh, Prime Minister Bob Lockman has said that, uh, you know, he expects uh, that an election will be held in the next 30 to 60 days. How do you see that play out? I mean, uh, you know, he's, he's, quite, he's spoken to uh, Radio New Zealand and he said that uh, that, that, that is what uh, the people want. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on, on that? Well, if the, if the decision of the president to dissolve parliament is upheld, then you're quite right. We will go to elections in a fairly short space of time. Um, elections are expensive. I saw the paper was saying, Daily Post was reporting that it would cost 100 million Vatu to stage elections. And obviously, that's not been budgeted for this year because there wasn't, an, you know, the elections weren't due till 2024. Um, so I think, you know, elections generally proceed quite smoothly in Vanuatu. We don't see uh, violence or disputes uh, in the pre election period. You know, it's generally quite a smooth process. But obviously it is disruptive and, you know, there are parts of the Vanuatu economy and business sectors that are only just kind of restarting when the board, since the borders opened on the 1st of July. So it is a bit, you know, it's a big, 
a big kind of um, blip on the radar for, you know, a country that wasn't expected to have elections, still trying to get uh, the economy and the country reopened and restarted post-COVID. So I think it's, um, you know, it will be a challenge, uh, but I don't think it's one that's insurmountable. Uh uh, the leader of opposition, uh, uh, Ralph Rekemanu, you know, he's constantly uh, uh, said to us that uh, there's a lot of issues with good governments and, 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 and the whole leadership of uh, Prime Minister Lofman. Um, so do you think that, uh, you know, this, uh, this decision to dissolve the parliament is going to be a popular decision? Um, you know, I'm not. I'm not sure how it will go with in terms of popularity. I think. I think there are. I think there are widespread concerns with the quality of governance that we've seen from this government, um, and I think that the responses to that vary. I think there are some people that will welcome the chance to, you know, sort of basically start again with an election and, and you know get maybe get new people into parliament and see how that falls out. And there will be others who will be, you know more more aligned with the position of the leader of the opposition that the best thing to do is to you know let the motion go forward follow that process through and assuming that the motion is successful there will be a change of government and what is currently the opposition will become the government and you know things will go ahead i think it's important to realize that uh, you know i made mention of the cost of the elections the cost of changing a government in that way through a motion of no confidence is also quite considerable you know it doesn't come you know it doesn't come cost free so i you know i think both both the leaders the leader Lofman as prime minister and regan who is leader of the opposition they're both kind of arguing the same thing which is the other side's option is disruptive and so they should go with theirs so you know, it's, it's kind of a bit of a Hobson's choice as to which version of disruption um, people are most likely to want. I would think that in terms of the business community, um, the, you know, the change of government by virtue of a motion of no confidence is possibly less disruptive than an election period followed by elections. It, you know, it kind of it disrupts all sorts of things in terms of whether people are available to go to work, getting access to transport and all those sorts of things. You know, just one final thing on on the issue of uh, not the issue, but you know, uh, Melanesian political is uh, it tends to be quite uh, uh, fast moving and and, so, and some sometimes volatile. Uh, and so, what what role does custom play in this whole process that we are seeing uh, happen in front of us? I think we've already seen custom playing a role. So we've seen a number of. Uh, reconciliations between different political actors, all of which are performed within the, the rights and the protocols of, of Vanuatu customs. So that might be, um, you know, a, a formal apology or an exchange of gifts. Um, so we've already seen a number of those take place as these different camps have aligned and people have moved from one camp to another and reconciled with people that they might have long-standing differences with. In terms of... Um, in terms, of, and, and, and I think that we'll see more of that as these different groups fracture and reform. Um, in terms of elections, generally, generally custom does not is not significant in terms of the actual machinery of elections that's de dealt with by the Electoral Commission and the Representation of the People Act. But in terms of how it plays out in communities, then there are customary aspects to that in terms of 
you know, seeking permission from chiefs, for example, to address a meeting in a village or, um, you know, sort of holding meetings in, in different Nakamals or Nasaras would be done in accordance with the custom of each different place. The Northern Marianas is still struggling to cope with an outbreak of COVID-19, which began shortly after it opened its borders to tourists and hosted the Pacific Mini Games in June. The Commonwealth Healthcare Corps and the Governor's COVID-19 Task Force this week confirmed that a 39th person had died as a result of COVID-19 last Monday. Joining us from Saipan is RNZ Pacific correspondent Mark Rabago. Kia ora, Mark. How are things going at the moment? We're back at medium level. Uh, I think it's because of uh, we have uh, a lot of positive cases. Ever since uh, tourism opened up and then uh, because of the mini games, I think a lot of people got infected. And we just got our 39th death early this week. Uh, originally, there were three individuals who were hospitalized and then obviously one of them died so uh, we're one step closer one death closer to a very grim milestone which is our 40th death because of COVID-19. You said medium there you mean you've gone up to medium level is that what you meant? Or come yeah down? we were you we were low for a couple of months and then just like a week after the mini games it went back up again I think it because there's just so many gatherings people going to the sports venues and of course, we couldn't discount like people coming in, infecting others, and you know, can't really stop them from mingling with the uh, athletes. Some of them probably were relatives, because Sierra is a mixed spot of uh, races here in the Pacific. There's some Samoans, some Fijians here, and we probably know each other from way back. So yeah, it's inevitable. It comes with the territory, I think, with the mini games. You know, you take the good with the bad. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and, and what what's the government messaging been like? What are they telling people? Well, the mandatory masks are not back. People are just going around doing their own business. Masks are optional. Just uh, reminding people to get vaccinated. Uh, I'm actually in my, I think, first booster shot. I'm not allowed to get the second because I'm not 50 yet and I don't have any other sickness that would allow me, but those who are 50 and have underlying illnesses can get it. So the government has been steadfast in its messaging that those who qualify who are 50 and above and have underlying illnesses can get the vaccine. Um, I think we're not too worried because we've been the threshold of 90% of the population, eligible population that is, who are who can take the vaccine are already uh, vaccinated. So it's just the booster shots and the second booster shots if possible. And just uh, if, you're, if you're sick, stay home. Um, a bit of good news, though, uh, just to show that the CDMI isn't really that worried about incidences of COVID-19 infections now is we gave away 50,000 uh, testing kits and I think also some PPEs, personal protection um, equipment to uh, FSM, Federated States of Micronesia, and uh, RMI, the Republic of Micronesia, of Marshall Islands. So, yeah, it's a good gesture for in our part because those two islands also helped us during uh, our crisis and time of need during uh, and after uh, YouTube. So that's uh, something that developed us. Yeah, and yeah, it's, it seems like all of Micronesia is sort of getting hit now after so, like, so many of you managed to keep it up for so long and, and were living without it. But I guess um, I was talking to Gif in the Marshall Islands and he was saying that 
at least in that time, like people have had time to observe what other places have been through and, and had like learned lessons from other, other responses elsewhere. Are you getting the same sense of preparedness, I guess is, is my question. I think the other countries who didn't really have any incidences, they had time to vaccinate everybody and also learn from the mistakes. The CNMI, I think we got it like a few months after the world got it. So we didn't have much preparation. Um, so there were deaths, but um, with the case of Nauru, it was fast, right? They they went from zero to 100 in like a few days because of the infection. And then subsequently, some people died. I think those who are most affected are those with underlying sicknesses. So it's, it's, it's correct. Those small islands who lock themselves, they shut their borders, are the one now feeling the brunt of the COVID-19. And hopefully they learn from our lessons and most of their population are vaccinated now. South Auckland business leader Olomato Tua Saulaulu Ayono has been inducted into the New Zealand Business Hall of Fame. The current Alliance Health Plus chairman founded the Made Machine Learning Breakthrough Company Gorgita almost 40 years ago. Olomato Tua started off his career by investing in areas he was passionate about, including health, social housing, and Pacifica causes. He founded NGOs, the Cause Collective, and Project Odyssey, an ongoing piece of work carrying on the legacy of Vainga Tuingamala's voyage towards better health. Ulomato Tua went into business with his wife Margaret and the pair are active members in their South Auckland community. He spoke with Lydia Lewis following the ceremony. Despite the fact that I was a difficult child in Apia, my uh, mother was born into a very privileged family. And she and her sisters were like princesses and up here in Samoa. And so it was a very great, severe change for her to come to New Zealand with my father. And uh, there was probably a year to two years of discussion before they agreed to come to New Zealand. And in 1986, you became the first Pacifica community member to complete a postgraduate MBA degree at Otago University. Tell me a bit about your time there. The Otago University uh, environment, even when I went there with my wife in uh, you know, 1979, and I was really the only Pacific Islander in the field where I chose to study and the domains. The Otago University environment was very um, warm and welcoming. And it wasn't just the students, it was the the uh, culture of the, the lecturers, the workshops. And I found the same thing when I did the master's degree and the postgraduate diplomas. And I, I think it's the same today. Your wife, Margaret, how did you meet? I came here on the Union Steamship Company freighter, a banana boat. And 17 years later, I became an item with my wife, who was a, a great-great-granddaughter of, you know what I think are the original founders of uh, the shipping line. And Margaret, I understand, has been an integral part of the success of many businesses. Yes, she might. Well, again, my wife is very private, and so um, she's held a number of uh, chief financial officer positions. And uh, our aim was to raise a family. We have one son. So despite all the in vitro fertilization and some miscarriages, we ended up with one son. And so when he was born, my wife said, that's it. 
I'm not going to work anymore. I'm going to focus on our son. So that was back in 88. So it was 11 years after we met. And by then we'd gone down to Dunedin. I'd done the degrees and we'd come back. And by then I'd started our cogitor business. And my wife said, our son's born. Uh, I'm just going to stay home now and look after him. And so uh, really from 1988 when my son was born, my wife in one form or another has been involved in our um, business and business heirs. Usually uh, what my wife does is she builds the business and the way that I express it is I'm good at making the money and my wife is Scottish and she's good at keeping the money. <laughs> if it for her, we'd have nothing. <laughs> I'm Samoan, she's Scottish. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. It's, well, it's a perfect pairing then because, you know, you need balance in life. I had no idea, though, about your journey to becoming a parent. Is that something you've spoken about um, much no, before? No. I don't know if this is going to help anyone, but I suppose the lessons that my wife learned are just keep trying until it's no longer possible. What is your advice to the next generation? Partway through the evening last night, after I got off the stage, four um, grammar boys in uh, grammar jackets came over and talked to me. And um, I said to them, what are you going to do? And one said, well, I'm going to do physics. I said, where? And he said, at Auckland University. Oh, he said, at Melbourne, in Melbourne. I said, why Melbourne? And he said, because, you know, I'd really like to study somewhere else, further, further afield overseas but I can't afford to go further than Melbourne. And I asked another one, and he said, I'm doing ecology. And I asked another one, and he said, uh, uh, vacation. I said to them, what's your dream? And as I was talking to them, I, I, I remember how I felt, and I said to them, you, the dream is the most important thing for you to articulate for yourself. Because what you'll hear from all the laureates this evening is that every one of us struggled until we felt that there was something that we just possessed us. And we couldn't sleep, or we could sleep, but we would wake up and we'd still be thinking about it. And I said, that's the dream. The dream is something you just can't stop thinking about because it possesses you. I said, it's not an interest. You know, an interest is something you put up and pick, pick up and put down. And they said to me, oh, okay. And I said, well, you'll hear you know, you're only halfway through the night and you'll hear from other people. And Graham Hart's last, and you'll hear from him too, how he was exploring and looking, for, well, what am I going to do? And it didn't really matter to them, to him. It didn't really matter to me. My dream was to be, and they said, what was your dream? And I said, my dream was to be free. And I said, when I listened to the other laureates, I tried to work out what was their dream. And I, and I said, that's why, you know, when you heard me talk, I've done a lot of things and still do a lot of things. The whole point of that is to continue to realize my dream to be free, which is to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, as long as it's, you know, it must be legitimate as honest and honest. I said, you guys must work out what your dream is. And it doesn't matter what you do. Just do something. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Look at me for next time more.